there is real fruit if someone is truly, genuinely saved. It's an impossibility for you to confess Jesus and not to show evidence. You either bear fruit or you are dead wood. There's really not much in between. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are currently in our series on evangelizing, and today is part two of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, Sharing Christ in the Spirit. Pastor Carl reminds us that the idea of abiding in Christ is synonymous in the New Testament with being filled with the Holy Spirit. More importantly, all believers must remember to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and be totally dependent on Him for everything in our lives if we hope to bear real fruit. Please join us in the book of John, chapter 15, verse 3, as we continue. The principle in the New Testament is every true child of God bears real fruit. Now, sometimes it's not all that impressive. There's some lingering, somewhat less than fresh grapes. Some look like raisins. <laughs> but there's real fruit if someone is truly, genuinely saved. It's an impossibility for you to confess Jesus and not to show evidence. You either bear fruit or you are dead wood. There's really not much in between. Now, you'll notice when we come down to verse 6 that once the branch is removed, we'll look at it in a moment, it is burned. And by the way, those who say you can lose your salvation, verse 6 says a whole lot more than they want it to say because it's burned. It doesn't have another chance. It's burned. You're not born again, then unborn again, then born again again, and then unborn again again, and then born again again again. No, you're saved once. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you forever, and forever means forever. So the Father's role is as the heavenly vine dresser, and it's expressed in two principal ways. First, to cut every branch that does not bear fruit, and we'll see again their end in a moment. But second, he prunes. As noted in the margin, if you have the New American Standard with the marginal notes, sometimes it will give you a more literal rendering. It may sound a little archaic, but it says on the margin, he cleanses every branch that does bear fruit. Why? So it can be more fruitful. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. So pruning in a vineyard is not optional, it's imperative. Fruitfulness is imperative. That's the whole reason a vineyard exists. And so pruning is done so that unproductive growth is removed and maximum fruitfulness is achieved. My father is the vine dresser. And so the branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes. And God has many creative ways of pruning us. Uh, let me just say parenthetically here, too. It's the Father who is the vine dresser. We don't need to be self-appointed vine dressers. We don't need to play the role of God the Holy Spirit. God's the one who is the vine dresser. Now, God may use you in the pruning process as you share the Word of God, and it brings conviction. But let the Holy Spirit be the Holy Spirit. Don't play the role 
of the Holy Spirit. But just like a vine dresser knows precisely where to put the knife, the exact angle in which to cut the, 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 the wood or the sucker, even so, God knows precisely how it is that we need to be pruned. And He does it for our good, ultimately, that He might be glorified. It's not by accident. In this portion of Scripture, fruit is mentioned eight times. I have it circled. Three times in verse uh, 2, twice here in verse 4, once in verses 5, verses 8, and then again in verse 16. God is committed to you because He loves you, as Jesus is going to emphasize here before this whole section is completed. He's committed to shaping the Lord Jesus Christ in you. And pruning, well, it can be painful, but the outcome is great. So how does the Father prune us? Well, He certainly convicts us or cleanses us. Um, Sometimes, according to Hebrews 12 or uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he gives us a divine spanking. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. You don't discipline the next door neighbor's children, only your own. So it is with the heavenly Father. He doesn't discipline the pagan. He only disciplines the one who's born again. And so if someone can live in sin and not experience divine discipline, it just means their profession is empty. It's not real. He might discipline us physically, 1 Corinthians 11.30. He might discipline us financially. He might discipline us relationally. But He knows how to ring your bell. He knows how to get our attention. Why? Because He wants us to be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, James tells us that when we're in the pruning process, we need to consider it all joy. We need to count it joy. So we can moan and groan and bellyache when we're under the divine knife, but we're missing what God wants to do. And sometimes He has to do it all over again. That's the point of James 1. Now look at verse 3, if you will. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. You are already clean. You could write over that. You are already saved because that's the essence of what He is saying. On two occasions in the Gospel of John, the Lord uses the word clean in order to underscore those who are saved. For instance, not an hour or so before, in John chapter 13, you might want to put it in the margin, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. And then he says in verse 11, for he knew the one who is betraying him, For this reason, he said, you are not all clean. Once you've been saved, you have been clean. Now, one of the lessons of foot washing is not just that we need to be servants, though we do, but there was a much deeper lesson, if you know the passage, that Jesus said they wouldn't get that night, but they would get hereafter, later on. And the point was, is that once you're saved, you are forever clean, But as you walk through this world, sometimes your feet get dirty. He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. But there was someone there that night who had never experienced salvation. And of course, it was Judas. Most of you know that. So Jesus said here in verse 3, You are already clean. Why? Because of the word which I have spoken to you. The Lord is reminding us that the word, the message, is what God uses to bring about salvation. 
Verse 3 is not speaking of sanctification. Verse 3 is speaking of justification. Sanctification is that process after you are born again, as God shapes you into the image and likeness of Christ. Justification is that moment where God judicially declares you righteous. You're redeemed from that day on forever a saint of God. Now, in the church I grew up in, only a select few achieve sainthood. But you can call me this morning Saint Brogy, because if I've been born again, God has called me a saint, because it's not earned. It is It is not merited. It is credited to you by grace. And so it's in the hearing and the believing of the Word that people are clean. That's always been God's method. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of God. It doesn't matter whatever age you live in, even before the first word of Scripture was given, and it was only through the Word. It may have come in a dream or a vision or in a direct encounter with God, but it was through the Word that men are made clean. And the degree to which you believe that is the degree to which you will use the Word to bring about conversion. Some Christians say, well, I just want to live my life in such a way that people will see my life and want to be saved. And St. Francis of Assisi made an absolutely stupid statement in that regards. I won't even quote him this morning. That somehow your life has power to convert. Don't preach a sermon, just live a life. That's sheer nonsense and folly. The instrumental means that the Spirit of God uses. For you've been born again not of perishable seed, but imperishable seed through the living and abiding Word of God. The Word that I have spoken to you. In the parable of the sower, Jesus describes a farmer who goes out and sows seed, and in the interpretation of the parable, he tells us that the seed is the Word of God. And again, even in the Old Testament, people who heard the Word through whatever means is what God used. Now, look at verse 4. So because they are clean, Jesus now says in verse 4 to these saved, "'Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me.'" So again, Jesus is speaking to those who are already clean, to those who are already saved, and he wants them to know now in terms of the sanctification process, the growth process, we need to abide in him and he in us. The word abide is used throughout the Scripture to describe that process of remaining close to the Lord. And he wants us to understand that there needs to be a continual closeness a continual dependence on the Lord. It's absolutely essential and indispensable to bearing fruit. There needs to be a moment-by-moment, situation-by-situation dependence on the vine. No branch has life in and of itself. The branch receives its life from the vine. A branch is lifeless, it's useless, it's fruitless, apart from the sap that the vine gives it. Jesus said, he's the vine, you and I are just branches. You never see a branch sweat and strain on its own to produce fruit. No, it relies on the vine, and the vine produces the sap that produces the fruit. So what precisely does it mean to abide? 
Well, the idea of abiding in Christ is synonymous in the New Testament with being filled with the Holy Spirit. He already spoke in John 14 about the promise of the new covenant. And he's going to uh, rehearse that again when he comes to John chapter 16. But walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, dependent upon him, abandoned to him is essential. Where you begin the day, you live the day, Lord, I cannot do this on my own. That unless you live your life in and through me, oh, I can be active, but I can't bear real fruit. And so you, you come to Jesus, not just for pardon, you come to him for power. How did you come to Jesus for pardon? There was a point in your life, if you are saved, where you admitted that you weren't good enough and there's not a single work you've ever done that can help save you. And until you come to that point, you're not even calling yourself a sinner. You have no need of a Savior yet. But you came and you put your full weight in Jesus who died, was buried, and was raised. Well, the Bible calls the gospel the power of God to save you. Well, Paul will write to the church at Coloss, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. In the same way you received him in that state of bankruptcy and brokenness, that's how we are to walk in him, dependent upon him. Look, I am overwhelmed every Sunday that I am called to stand behind this pulpit. And I know that my words are just meaningless. Unless the Spirit of God operates through me. And that's true in every aspect of life, whether you're changing diapers or cutting the grass. Whatever you're doing, in total dependence on the Lord. Lord Jesus, I need you. Because without you, I can do absolutely nothing. There's no real spiritual life, no real fruit. And spiritual fruit in this chapter, as we're going to see, has many different aspects, including, as this series has been underscoring, attempting to win people to Jesus Christ. The branch cannot produce life on its own. And so throughout Scripture, there's actually seven different figures that God uses to describe our relationship to the Lord Jesus. You know most of them, like, He is the head, we are the body. He is the chief shepherd, we are the sheep. He is the bridegroom, we are the bride. A member of the body, cut off from the head, is dead. It needs the head for life, for direction. And a marriage, well, there's a new union. But with that said, it takes daily love and devotion for that communion to grow and to develop. And so it is, the Scripture would make a distinction between our union in Christ and our communion with Christ, and we'll see that as we walk through this passage. And the sooner we discover that we are but branches, the better we will relate to Him as the shepherd, as the bridegroom, and as the head. All right? That's the second point, the vine and its branches. Now let's go into the third point, the vine and its bounty. The vine and its bounty, if you're taking notes. Look now, if you will, at verse 5. Jesus now states, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. He wants us to know the condition for fruitfulness. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears 
much fruit. So one of the key words in this portion of Scripture is this word abide. It's the same Greek word. It comes out every time in the New American Standard, not in all the translations in the English tongue, but the New American Standard is really the gold standard. And sometimes I think they, you know, they, they give way to maybe readability to be more literal, but when you study the Scripture verse by verse, word by word, it's really extremely helpful. Ten times in the first 11 verses, he underscores this word abide. So how do you abide? Well, number one, verses 9 and 10 indicate that you must obey. We'll come to that in a moment. You obey his word, and you confess to him the sin when you have not done that, because while nothing can sever your union, all kinds of things can sever your communion with Christ. If you'll notice in verse 4, this is a command to abide in him. So while this abiding relationship is natural to the branch— into the vine, it has to be cultivated in the life of the true believer. It's not automatic. It's predicated on different choices that you make. And once you've begun to cultivate that communion, more and more you don't want to go back to what the world has. You see how empty and how vain and how useless it is. But here's the main point. You cannot live the Christian life apart from abiding him. Apart from him, you can do nothing. Nothing? That's right. Nothing. Nothing of genuine, eternal value that produces God the Holy Spirit kind of fruit by which God is glorified. Now, it may look like fruit from a distance, but God just sees it as plastic. There's a lot of plastic fruit that goes around. I'm not talking here just about lost people who have no life, who profess one thing but not really saved. Sometimes as Christians, we can claim to be really spiritual, and we think we're really spiritual. When maybe in reality, if we look at this passage carefully and we let God take the the pruner's knife and open us up, we may see we're not as spiritual as he wants us to be. Without him, I can do nothing. With him, I can do everything. Paul will say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But you cannot do those things that God has destined for you to walk in beforehand, as Ephesians 2.10 underscores, unless you are abiding in him. Now, there's a progression here, and don't miss it. In verse 2, he goes from no fruit, fruit, more fruit, to verse 8, much fruit. So no fruit, fruit, more fruit in verse 5, much fruit in verse 8. Look at verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. Now again, he's not talking about losing salvation. That's impossible. Jesus is describing people here who never had salvation. Put out in the margin, 1 John 2, 19, if they were of us, they would have remained with us, but the fact that they went out from us indicate they were never really of us to begin with. And so people do theology on experience. No, experience is not your authority. Sola Scriptura is. Experience must be put under the authority of Scripture. It's impossible for someone to lose salvation. Someone said, well, he was saved. Now he's a Mormon. Now he's a Hindu. Now he's a Buddhist. No, he was never saved to begin with. 
That's the point of Scripture. People who, again, are trying to be consistent with Scripture and know that the Bible and the church taught for 1,500 years without any exceptions, that once we're saved, we're always saved. And by the way, when Jacob Arminius came up with the view that you could lose your salvation, some people wanted him executed. They thought, man, this guy is just a false prophet. Well, I don't think he was a false prophet. I just think he was a little bit confused. So some wanting to be consistent said, well, he's not talking about uh, people losing their salvation. He's talking about people losing their reward. Well, I can appreciate that, but that's not clearly what the text is saying. Do you see the pronouns? You might want to circle them. The word anyone and the word he and the twice repeated word them and the word they. He's talking about people here. He's talking about people who, in the sight of God, are nothing more than worthless branches because they don't truly believe. Now, remember, the background for the vine goes back to the people of Israel. And people in Christ's day were outwardly religious, but they were inwardly deficient. Jesus said, they worship me with their lips, but their heart is far, far away. They boasted about being descendants of Abraham. And Jesus said, if you were really believers like Abraham, well, let me read it to you from John 8. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. Likewise, John the Baptist described most of the Jewish people in his day as just outwardly religious. And so he said in Matthew 3 of the religious leaders, you brood of vipers, who warned you? to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. You need fruit that only genuine faith can bring. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. And the ax is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Some Jewish people just thought that because they were descendants of Abraham, that meant they were going to heaven. There are people across America today, I've been baptized as a Christian, I've been confirmed as a Christian, I'm a member of a church somewhere, that means I'm going to heaven. Oh, no, 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 no. He makes it here and clear, clearly in verse 6 that if a person is not rightly related as shown through the evidence of bearing fruit, God casts them into the fire here at the end of verse 6, and they are burned. By the way, the prophet Ezekiel uses the same imagery. Put out next to verse 6, if you will, Ezekiel 15, 1 to 8. That would be a great text to go home and read, Ezekiel 15, 1 through 8. There God speaks to the prophet Ezekiel, and he warns that if a vine failed to produce fruit, its wood was good for nothing but for fire. And because of the rebelliousness of the people living in the capital of Israel, that really in one way reflected the whole nation, the capital of Israel, Jerusalem. By the way, it's God's eternal capital. Uh, Trump may have acknowledged it and moved the embassy there, which I'm very grateful that he did that. But ever before man acknowledged it as the capital, God said it was the capital. With that said, let me just read one verse from Ezekiel. He said in verse 6 of that chapter, Therefore, thus says the Lord, God, 
You'll notice, by the way, God is in all caps, so Elohim, Yahweh, kind of like when it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. When you see capital G, capital G, O, capital D, that's Yahweh, God's covenant name. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so I have given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now, the people in Jesus' day knew this passage well. This was like, not quite like John 3.16 is to us, but understand, a very well-known passage of Scripture. And so Jesus is reminding us of the fate of those who produce no fruit. Now, please notice what the Lord is doing here. He's carefully distinguishing the severed branches from the attached branches. Judas was a severed branch. He was committed to the cause, but he wasn't committed to the Christ. He had an outwardly religious relationship, but he had never attached himself through genuine faith. And there are people like that who fill even evangelical churches. They're living in gross outward sin, and yet they say they're born again. There's no discipline. There's no sorrow. There's no grief. They've deceived themselves, but I come to church. I do this in his name, and I do that in his name. And Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice iniquity. Understand, you're not saved by producing fruit. Jesus is not teaching salvation by works and denying a theme he's underscored all the way through John's gospel that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. But he is saying that if you are saved, you will produce fruit. And when there's no fruit, it just means there's no new life. Fire, that's the end of vine wood. I mean, once it's all dried up, it's useless. You can't build a house with vine wood. You can't make a piece of furniture. You can't make a kitchen utensil. You can't even make a hook on which to hang your hat. It's good for nothing but for kindling. And the point the Lord is making that just as dead branches in a vineyard are good for nothing but for the brush pile, so the person who professes to know Jesus, who claims to be attached to the vine, but who has no real fruit, he is ready for the fire and judgment of God. Now, that's important, because sometimes I have to do a funeral and the person says, well, so-and-so made a profession of faith. And then they've lived in adultery for the last 20 years. Now, I'm not their judge. God is. But the New Testament would give very little assurance that that person is born again based on Galatians 5, Ephesians 5, 1 Corinthians 6. Very, very little assurance. And again, to emphasize, the Lord is not teaching here that a true believer can lose salvation. To teach that, again, would contradict what he has plainly said. And it's unwise to take a parable and to build a major doctrine on it. Typically, in any parable, there's one main truth. And the main truth he's underscoring here is their fruitful life. But just as an unfruitful branch is useless, so an unfruitful person, no matter what they may say, is destined for judgment. Please join us tomorrow for part three and the conclusion of Sharing Christ in the Spirit. 
If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program Sharing Christ in the Spirit 021. Search the Scriptures is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you would like to help us sustain this ministry, click the Give button on our app or at searchthescriptures.org. Please join us tomorrow as we continue to search the Scriptures.